The conceptual problem when you invoke the term natural rights is people think that it's somehow spooky, um, as, as if, as if um, it's a thing that's in a person. So like if, you, if, you, if you've cut me open and you found my spleen, so well, see, he naturally has a spleen, but you wouldn't find any rights in there. So, well, what do you mean natural rights? But all it means is to say that they're a moral concept. And the other thing that it means to call right natural is that it conceptually precedes institutions of government. Hello and welcome to the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, and today we're going to be talking about the ideas of philosopher Robert Nozick. Joining me in that conversation is Professor Ian Scoble. Ian is a professor of philosophy at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. He's also a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. He's the author of our Essential Robert Nozick book, and so I'd like to welcome him. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to know a little bit about who was Robert Nozick. I'm an economist by trade, so uh, philosophy is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but who is Robert Nozick and why are his ideas so important? Well, Robert Nozick was an academic philosopher who was born in 1938, and he died in 2002, relatively early. He had uh, stomach cancer. Um, but uh, he was very influential and important as an academic philosopher because uh, around the time that he was in school getting his undergraduate and uh, even graduate education, um, there was just really no representation of classical liberal ideas in academic philosophy. Obviously, in, in economics, there were people who were interested in Smithian or Hayekian ideas uh, that are part of classical liberalism. But in academic philosophy, uh, other than historical sources like John Locke or John Stuart Mill, you really, as a philosophy student, would not encounter um, any sort of theoretically well-developed uh, approach to thinking about uh, classical liberalism. Um, and so uh, Nozick was important, among other reasons, for uh, coming up with a robust theory to support classical liberal ideas, or I should say a, a theory that points in the direction of classical liberal ideas. He has a theory of rights, and then a theory of justice, and then a theory of government, and then a theory of society. At the end of the book, we come to see that what he's recommending is recognizably uh, the classical liberal tradition, where each person has rights, and the government's function is to protect people's rights, and that it should do so in a way that allows for the maximal amount of uh, different ideas, different uh, ways of living, uh, because people are, in fact, uh, different people. Um, he's specifically concerned to respond to um, th uh, three three other schools of thought. He's interested in responding, first of all, to anarchist thought. Anarchists claim also that people have rights, but argue that therefore no government could possibly be justified. So Nozick's first mission, so to speak, is to try to explain, well, you can actually justify a minimal state, and he outlines the argument for why that's true. But then he goes on to say, however, you can't really justify anything more than that. And so his other two um, antagonists, so to speak, are, uh, first of all, Marxism, but also the, the sort of um, 
egalitarian welfare state progressive view that was common in North America and Western Europe in the mid 20th century. That is to say the environment in which uh, he would have uh, grown up. Um, more specifically, uh, the ideas of John Rawls, um, who had published a very important and influential treatise three years before Nozick's book, explaining why a sort of uh, egalitarian welfare state redistributivism uh, was the what, what was what justice required. So he's got that argument specifically in his in his sites as well. So those are the three things that he's trying to argue against and at the same time make a positive case um, for a, a liberal vision of uh, pluralism and freedom. Um, one of the and I should mention that uh, one of the reasons that he's important and this sounds superficial, but he was a professor at Harvard mm -hmm. and unfortunately uh, it, it's often the case that, your ideas, however good, can be overlooked if you don't have a good enough platform. Um, so because he was at one of America's most prestigious universities, he he had a sort of um, built-in platform for being able to get his ideas across. That is to say, there's a tendency to say, well, I, I guess I'll listen to this guy for five minutes being that he's a Harvard professor. And again, that's sort of superficial. You should only be concerned really with the quality of a person's arguments and, and, and so forth. But many people do use as a kind of a shorthand, uh, well, where's this guy at? That sort of thing. As it happens, John Rawls, whom I mentioned earlier, was his colleague at Harvard. So that must have been an interesting and lively department uh, to be a part of in the early 70s. Rawls's book came out in 71 and Nozick's book in 74. Yeah, those lunchtime conversations had to have been very uh, entertaining, if not heated. Um, so how how was his uh, book received? How were his ideas received at the time? Largely favorably. Um, the book received the National Book Award. Um, uh, and it was, um, it, it made... Um, it created an alternative in political philosophy, in academic political philosophy, for thinking about the relationship between the individual and society differently from either Rawlsian redistributivists or from Marxists. Um, he therefore gives the sort of classical liberal view, um, uh, like a sort of newfound uh, traction in, in, in the academy. And of course, today, uh, there are many people in academic philosophy who take these ideas seriously, still a minority, I hasten to add, um, but but uh, certainly not unheard of at all. And, and there, there are many people now um, who work in this area and who have been influenced uh, by this approach to thinking about rights and thinking about justice and thinking about government and offering an alternative to either Marxist or Rawlsian ideas. So you mention in the book that he wasn't, Nozick wasn't always a classical liberal, that he was actually kind of attracted to other ideas. Can we tell, can you talk a little bit about you know, what changed? Uh, you know, where did he start and what changed? Uh, I th well, I mean, I, th I think he was attracted to socialist ideas in, in um, his, his early student days. I think 
um, what we have here is an example of someone who's, you know, really committed to philosophy. And so to be committed to philosophy is to be interested in the arguments and where does this argument go and what are the objections to this position and, and what are the strengths and weaknesses of this view or that view. And so I think he came to reject um, his earlier attraction to socialism and sort of re start refining an argument in favor of what we would now refer to as classical liberalism simply by being a good philosopher. Um, he encountered arguments, I, I guess I should also mention he was um, very widely read outside of his field. So he was yeah. familiar with the arguments by, for example, Austrian economists. So um, other um, figures who were important to the classical liberal tradition from the econ side, Mises, Hayek, Rothbard, and so forth, those were people whose work he'd encountered. In fact, um, they're also where he sort of picked up on this idea of um, you know, individuals having rights and so forth. Um, so he, he would have seen some of those arguments from these other disciplines, but then would have been able to think about how those affected his thinking about political philosophy. And so I think it was just a matter of uh, being a good philosopher, seeing where the arguments go, and that's what led him to come up with the ideas that he came up with in that, in that book. So let's talk about some of those ideas. Uh, the first thing that I think we should probably establish is what it, his theory of rights, because that's kind of how everything is is structured from there. Um, so you mentioned in the book that a lot of his critics claim that he just asserts from the beginning that we have rights and he doesn't really um, argue where they come from, but you say that's that's wrong. So where where are rights coming from, according to Nozick? Yeah, th that's correct. It's a sort of sloppy criticism. He start like literally the first sentence in the book is people have rights, um, and so then he starts talking about what that entails, and as far as things that people can't do without violating your rights. And so if you're not paying a lot of attention, you might say, oh, well, where'd that come from? He's just asserting that we have rights without any argument. And some famous critics have actually claimed that like this is the fatal flaw in his book and so forth. But if you're patient and work through the first several chapters, by the time you get through chapter three, he's made an argument why we have, why we should consider ourselves as having rights. Um, so I, I think it's not a, a legitimate criticism. I mean, of course, people can find things to criticize, but that's really not a good one uh, because he does present an argument for why we should have rights. He understand rights. He understands rights as a moral concept. So it's moral philosophy type arguments that point in the direction of here's why we should regard each other this way, um, and and it's based on the fact of our separate existences. We each have individual separate lives, and there's no no good reason to think that anybody else has some natural entitlement to own you as a tool or something like that. So I, I use in the, in the book the example of a hammer, right? A hammer doesn't have any independent existence. It doesn't exist for its own sake. Hammers exist so that people can use them for their own purposes, right? But people aren't like that. People do exist for their own sake and have their own purposes. Now, you could argue against that, but then the burden would be on you to show why you know, Bob over here has some natural entitlement to use Jim over there as his personal tool. And there's really no good reason to think that. So the, the fact of our separate existences 
we're all distinct individuals living our own lives, that's going to create a moral argument for a constraint on the activities of others. It creates limits on how other people can justifiably treat you. So constraints on the actions of others is the flip side of my rights. So, you know, one person having a right and the other person having a constraint, those are sort of complementary concepts. Um, so I'm not, if I'm not allowed to do something to you, that means that you have a right against me, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it, this derives, again, from the distinct separateness of our individual lives and the idea that there isn't any plausible reason to think that others have a natural claim of ownership over a person. So in Nozick's conception of rights, you know, it, would you say this is kind of a natural rights argument or um, is it different than something like we would consider a natural rights argument? I, I think natural rights is, is a good enough way to describe it. The, the conceptual problem when you invoke the term natural rights is um, people think that it's somehow spooky, um, as as if, as if um, it's a thing that's in a person. So, like if you if you if you've cut me open and you found my spleen, so well, see, he naturally has a spleen, but you wouldn't find any rights in there. So, well, what do you mean natural rights? But all it means is to say that they're a moral concept. And the other thing that it means to call right natural is that it conceptually precedes institutions of government. And we don't actually need Nozick to understand that. Think about the argument um, that we see in the U.S. Uh, Declaration of Independence, right? The argument there is, you know, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. So the argument there is, and Jefferson didn't make that up, it came from John Locke. The argument there is we have rights by virtue of the kind of being that we are, and then we make up governments to protect those rights. Um, as opposed to the medieval conception that the king owns everything and rights are permissions given to you by the king, right? If, if you think that the king owns everything, then anything that would be my right would be something that the king has given to me. And that's not natural, that's a gift. The flip side of that, the converse of that, is to say that we have rights by nature because our moral natures imply certain things about how we may justifiably treat each other. Mm. And that's natural as opposed to artificial in, in the sense of coming from the government. Now, of course, some rights are artificial, right? Voting rights. You have mm -hmm. to first have a government where there's voting and then there's voting rights. But the right to live and be free, that's something that follows from our nature as persons. I like that explanation. That really clarifies what the distinction is for me in a way that I don't think I've heard it put that way before. I'm glad. Um, so you mentioned rights as moral constraints and in the book you kind of contrast that to other types of constraints like the laws of physics or maybe you know the economic law of scarcity so what's what's that distinction oh well it's it's i think it was wittgenstein who said that the task of philosophy is to make sure that we're not confused by grammar so <laughs> consider the sentence um i can't be in two places at once now consider the sentence, I can't murder Bob. So those grammatically look exactly the same, but they're really not saying the same thing at all. The reason that I can't be in two places at once is a 
constraint placed on me by the laws of physics. Like I literally don't have the ability to do it. But the second sense, of course, I could murder Bob if I wanted to, like I'm physically capable of chopping off his head or whatever. What it means to say I can't do it is that it's wrong for me to do it. So I'm talking about moral constraints, which of course people often violate their moral constraints. That's the whole point of morality is to talk about the shoulds and shouldn'ts, right? What what ought I to do or ought not to do? And so to say that, I, so it doesn't matter what my opinion is about being in two places at once, it's just not going to happen. But it's important that I have an opinion about the wrongness of murdering people because I certainly could do it, right? But I'm going to say, well, here's a moral constraint. I'm not supposed to do this. I shouldn't do this. I must not do this. And then I don't do it, of course, if I'm being a moral person, then I won't go around killing people. So it has to do with choice. Mm -hmm. um, the constraints imposed by the laws of physics or any other sort of scientific mathematical laws, um, I don't have any choice about obeying them. They, they don't prescribe, they describe, right? Mm -hmm. they, that just tells us the way the world is. Mm -hmm. But moral constraints are making a claim about what I should and shouldn't do. So that means I have to choose. I'm going to allow myself to be constrained by this, which means I have to have some good reason for accepting the constraint. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you do mention that utilitarians might take issue with Nozick's conception of rights. So what issue might a utilitarian take with, with this? Well, the, uh, the, uh, what a utilitarian, utilitarianism is the view that the only thing that's of moral significance is measurable pleasures and pains. Um, so the things that produce the greatest amount of pleasure or the least amount of pain are what the word good means and vice versa for bad. But it's not just pleasure and pain for one particular person, but the aggregate amount of pleasure and pain in the universe. So if I have to be inconvenienced for five minutes so that other some other person can have their life saved, that counts because you know my inconvenience is you know a very small drop in the total and the other person living is a great increase in the total. So that balances positively and so that's the good thing for you to do. Um, so utilitarians, th there's an intuitive appeal to that, right? Because of course the numbers should matter and my being five minutes late isn't worth somebody else getting killed. So th there's a good deal of intuitive uh, traction for the utilitarian view. The problem is um, when you push it to its logical conclusion, it's hard to see why utilitarian can't sacrifice a person for the greater good entirely. Like think in criminal justice terms, right? So we've been having a rash of robberies in the town. So we pick some random person and hang them in the public square and say, this is what happens to thieves in our town. And the hope is that this will scare off the person from committing the robbery. Say it does. Well, everyone in the town's better off because now the thief has left town because he's too scared of getting punished like that. But of course, it's horribly wrong to have hanged this innocent person just to send that message to the society. It's not clear why utilitarian can argue against that. And you know, some have tried. I didn't, I'm not the first person to think of that example. But uh, most of the attempts to argue against those sorts of counterexamples don't really don't really stand up to much scrutiny. So when you say something like, well, people have rights and there's things that you can't do without violating somebody's rights, it's as if, um, uh, you know, to, to, it, it's, um, 
well, to use a, a, a bridge playing metaphor, it's the trump card, right? It's like, bang, rights. So that means you can't sacrifice whatever that interest is for the sake of making other people happier. So to take a concrete example, um, when the ACLU uh, defends uh, Nazis having protest marches or something like that, the greater number of people are made unhappy by the protest for sure. And so you've got you know some small number of happy Nazis and a much larger number of offended people. So on a utilitarian basis, you might want to say, well, they shouldn't be allowed to, to say what they want to say or have their marches and parades and whatnot. Um, uh, that's what the utilitarian view would lead you towards. Uh, mm -hmm. But the idea of a right to freedom of expression means that it can't be overridden, even if it would make some larger number of people happy. Mm. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, so I want to move into the next part of Nozick's conversation about rights, because um, he applies that to try to if, you know, if that's our conception of rights, then what is the role for the state? And so he talks about the minimal state. Can you can you walk us through that argument, how he goes from rights to saying this is what the role for, for the state should be? Sure. If rights are rationally justified moral claims, then violating somebody's rights would be unjust. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole point of saying that you have a right that I not do something is that it would be unjust for me to do that thing to you. Um, Nozick's argument is that any use of state power that violates rights is immoral for the same reason that it would be wrong if I did it personally. In other words, I already lack the right to kill you. So if the state wanted to kill you, that they couldn't be justified in doing that either. I don't have the right to rob from you. So if the state wanted to rob from you, it would lack the authority to do so. And so the only morally legitimate function of state power would be to protect rights. And again, that's a familiar argument that goes back to the days of John Locke. Um, but one of the things that Nozick does that's interesting is sort of get, get into some of the nuts and bolts of what makes that work. Um, individuals acting jointly can't be justified in doing something that they can't morally do on their own. So all the usual arguments about um, when we form governments, then they magically get to do things that we couldn't do a minute ago. Uh, and unfortunately, even Locke sort of pushes in that direction a little bit. Um, but Nozick pushes back and, and argues that that's just not going to be logically consistent. Um, a logically consistent conception of rights means that there can't be any such thing as a right to violate rights. So the government can't acquire justified powers to do things that individual people couldn't do in the first place. Now, what people can do in, on their own is defend themselves, right? Um, so if you were trying to attack me, I'd be morally justified in defending myself. Now, if there's six of you and one of me, I might not be able to defend myself. Or if you're five times my size, I might not be able to defend myself but it would be logically and morally correct for me then to ask for help or contract for help in defending myself. So I can do that on my own and we can think of the government as being sort of the ultimate in the outsourcing of my individual right to protect myself, right? It's morally correct for me to protect myself, but if I can't do it, it's morally right for me to get others to help me out, whether they're my friends or whether they're people that I'm paying 
So Nozick actually talks about how that um, emergence of the state can happen in a completely non-coercive manner. Can can you explain that? That's his argument. He said because it, you know imagine that we. Um, just all started making these protective associations uh, for our mutual self-defense. Um, so that wouldn't violate anybody's rights because we would all be voluntarily joining these local different clubs uh, that were devoted to our mutual self-protection. And those clubs wouldn't be violating anybody else's rights because the only people whose goals would be thwarted by them would be people whose aim were to violate our rights, which they don't have a right to do in the first place. Um, so then what, so you can imagine, and this is sort of an anarchist argument, so you can imagine then that there's like lots of these different protection agencies. So we all find our rights protected because we're all members of one group or the other. Um, and that's how we find our rights being protected. Um, Nozick argues that it, it's very likely that these companies would start merging and, and uh, joining up themselves. So conglomerates would form, that sort of thing. And he speculates that uh, at some point it's it's at least possible that one would emerge as, as like the you know the, the the dominant protective agency that all the others end up being somehow associated with or, or part of in some way. And we could call that the minimal state. Um, and his argument is, well, then we've got something like a state, um, but we didn't get it by violating anybody's rights because it simply arose from the, um, the you know, lots of individual voluntary decisions. So we all joined little groups and the little groups joined to make bigger groups. And then eventually there was just one big group. There's some controversy about whether that's an inevitability or just something that might happen Mm -hmm. But that's that's sort of a, a finer point. No, I it's been a while since I've read Anarchy State and Utopia. I don't recall if he makes an argument as to why he thinks that that those mergers and that conglomeration takes place. Part of it is efficiencies of scale. Okay. Um, that's I was wondering if there was an economies of scale argument yeah, behind that. That's part of it. Yes. Okay. Um. So what about you know? people who either maybe can't afford to contract with a protection agency or maybe people who just want to hold out and be free riders in this type of system. Does he account for those people? Well, on the aggressor side, it wouldn't matter if they were um, if they were holdouts or not, because the the people upon whom they'd be predators would be protected. Um, if the concern rather is I'd like to join, but I can't afford to join, this is sort of speculative, but he imagines that oh, there'd be like levels of service. And so you, you could probably get the sort of lower tier service if you were of lesser means as opposed to the higher tier of service that you, you know, sort of like flying coach versus flying first class. Or like car insurance. You can exactly. get the basic coverage or comprehensive. Exactly. The other thing too, though, is there's been some speculation about, um, not just from Nozick, but also from anarchist philosophers, that if we understand rights as the sorts of things that others could act on your behalf, then there'd be some incentive for other people to defend you um, yeah. on a pro bono basis, because then if they could realize uh, a settlement, they could then get part of the settlement for the, you know, the way lawyers now get a part of the settlement if you sue IBM or something. Um, Interesting. 
yeah, they can, you know, get a share of the, the winnings. Right. And the other thing that he says, though, and, and this is where he differs from the anarchists, is to say that once we've got a dominant protective agency, then they're just going to have to cover everybody mm-hmm. because they're not letting anybody else now offer the service. So now that they've become a monopoly, um, they have the obligation to make sure that the coverage extends at least in some way to everybody. So he's really, this is where I do see his influence um, from the Austrian school and maybe a Smithian influence in that this is a, a spontaneous order explanation for how the state emerges, which is really interesting. That's correct. So he does make the argument that we can justify the minimal state, but then he goes further and says the, this minimal state is all that we can justify. So why is that the most that can actually be justified according to Nozick? Because all the things that the protective agencies do can't really count as rights violative because again, the predators don't have a right to be predatory. Mm-hmm. So when we use force to protect ourselves against predators, we're not violating their rights. But when we think about other things that governments typically do, his argument is that those things are violating somebody's rights. Well, just to take a simple example, if I wanted to publish a book that the majority thought was offensive, and so the government said, right, well, we won't let you publish that book. That would violate, well, not only my rights, but also the rights of anybody who might want to read the book. Um, So that would be an example of something that a government might do, but that is not an example of protecting rights, but an example of violating rights. So his argument there is um, both in sort of um, modern welfare state redistributivism, as well as in Marxism, um, there's no way to realize the goals of those distributive schemes without constantly interfering with people's rights. and that's what makes it wrong. It's, so it's, it's, this is a different argument from, say, knowledge problem arguments mm-hmm. in, in economics, although he knows those arguments and right. refers to them. But the main thing that he's hanging this on is that it would be it would violate other people's rights to be able to do if you interfere with their transactions, you're violating their rights. So he illustrates this with a really famous example. Um, his the book being written in 1974 he's talking about the basketball legend wilt chamberlain but you can mm-hmm. modern audiences tend not to know who that is but just think of lebron james or whoever whoever you think of as the most important uh, professional that athlete. was literally the only name i could think of was lebron james right right but it could be lebron it could be serena williams it doesn't matter any any highly paid professional athlete will work for his his story and the story goes like this imagine that you think that income distribution should be according to whatever pattern and so you got your wish and starting tomorrow everybody has exactly the proper shares that your theory says that they should have right so you got your wish incomes fairly distributed by your definition of fair okay but now what happens people are going to start doing things and different things are going to be valued differently by different people so what are you going to spend uh, here you know pick some random dollar what are you going to spend that dollar on well something different from what your neighbors are going to spend it on. Some are going to spend it on fish. Some are going to spend it on chocolate. Some are going to spend it on a magazine. Some are going to spend it going to see their favorite athlete play a sport. Okay. 
not everybody's going to spend it the same way because everybody's got different values, different priorities and whatever. So different tastes and preferences. So we all start spending our money different ways. What's going to happen inevitably is that some people are going to accumulate more just because of the numbers. So let's say you had to pay an extra 25 cents to see Serena Williams play tennis. Well, as a tennis fan, you're eager to do that. You're happy to pay an extra 25 cents because she's your favorite player, whatever. Okay, so at the end of the season, she's got 30 million extra dollars. So the pattern that you thought was the fair distribution has now been thoroughly upset because a couple months after, now we've got this multimillionaire tennis player. And of course, it's not just her. It's all the other professional athletes. It's all the rock stars, all the movie stars. All those people end up making a zillion dollars. Now, they're not getting all that money from a single person, right? You only paid an extra 25 cents or whatever to see your favorite athlete. You know, you go see a Tom Cruise movie. You're only giving Tom Cruise like a dollar, maybe 50 cents, okay? Nevertheless, because a Tom Cruise movie serves zillions of people, he ends up being worth millions and millions to the movie studio. But you didn't pay him a lot of money. You just paid him a little bit of money, which according to the distribution scheme was your money in the first place. So you owned that dollar and you chose to give it to Tom Cruise for a couple hours worth of entertainment. But now he's got millions of dollars. So Nozick's argument is, how could that, you know, the pattern got upset. If that, if the end stayed there, where now Tom Cruise and Serena Williams have zillions of dollars, if that's wrong, where did it go wrong? But remember, we started from a place where everybody had what you defined as everybody's fair share. Mm -hmm. So the only way that we could have a good state here and a bad state there would be if it were wrong for people to exercise their rights to spend those shares as they freely chose. So if you object to the end state where Serena Williams is a millionaire, you must also think it's okay to violate people's rights, to forbid them from engaging in those transactions. And so his argument is, you know, this is just one example. To make sure that those patterns stayed locked in place, the state would have to continuously interfere all the time with everybody's transactions. So that's completely incompatible with the conception of rights that he's come up with. So they'd either have to take a lot of choices away from people so that we don't see, you know, big winners in markets, or there would have to be a constant state of redistribution. Right. And so if, if you did allow people to spend the extra money for their favorite rock star or whatever, but then the second you paid the rock star, you took the money away from the rock star, there wouldn't be as much incentives to be a rock star. There wouldn't be any such thing as rock stars or pro athletes or movie stars or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he's aware of you know, the sort of incentive structure that would go on there. And um, that brings up something that I thought was really important in this argument is that he's really focused on dynamic nature of the economy and of society. Um, and he, he talks about how if we really want to make people better off, then we might you know, want to focus on what kind of system is going to allow the poorest to do better um, in the future. So can you talk a little bit about that, that why he focuses so much on that dynamic 
aspect. Yeah, one of the things, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, because one of the things that he thinks is similar about both Marxism and Rawlsianism is it, it, it's kind of a, a static view, like a snapshot. When you talk about distribution patterns, it's just like you're freeze framing the entire society and say, well, you know, here are all the quintiles and here's what everybody has. Um, but as as an economist, you're already aware of this. That's constantly changing. Um, people move up and down within quintiles um, and across quintiles. Uh, people all express their preferences in the market in different ways. And this adds up differently just based on the nature of the different occupations. Um, you're only going to buy you know, one refrigerator every 20 years, but you go to a movie 600 times in 20 years. Um, so you pay more for the fridge, but that's because it lasts 20 years. You don't pay that much for the movie, but you're going a lot. Also, a lot of other people get to see the same movie. Only you get to use your fridge, but mm -hmm. lots of other people are going to that movie. So even if they only paid a little bit of money, it adds up to a lot of money for the movie studio. And that's why they can pay movie stars that much money. Um, probably more, I'm sure Tom Cruise gets more per picture than the guy working in the refrigerator factory. Um, but of course, a, you know, a refrigerator is more important to my life than any particular movie that I might go to. Nevertheless, I'm able to have a refrigerator and go to the movies because it's all very dynamic. I do things and people pay me and then I pay other people for the things that I value and that's it's flowing all the time. And so um, he thinks that the static state views of distribution patterns overlook the constantly changing dynamic nature of economic relations. The other thing that I think is an important insight from him, and this is what the, the, the pro athlete example is partly also meant to show, is that there isn't really a difference between economic freedoms, like I have the right to buy and sell these goods, and like freedom in the normal sense of the word, like freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, um, because they're mutually tied together, right? When I choose to spend my money on a particular thing, that's an expression of my values and preferences. Mm -hmm. So if you say you're not allowed to make that transaction, that's just as much a violation of my right of freedom of conscience, of freedom of choice, um, as as anything else. Um, so the the the, um, the, the, the the it's hard to say. Well, I do believe we should protect civil liberties, but we're going to have to make restrictions on economic transactions. Which mm -hmm. that's Rawls's move, but Nozick argues that that's logically going to fall apart. Um, and he's not the only person that has, like Hayek and Milton Friedman have both made the claim that you can't sustain civil liberties or political freedom without having economic freedom and you know, property rights more than anything else. Yeah, um, it's a profound insight. And it's, it's having, being able to see that point is one of the defining characteristics of the liberal mind. So we're almost running out of time. So before we end today, I want to talk about possibly the most interesting part of his book, which is the the framework for utopia, the utopia of the anarchy state and utopia. What does utopia look like to Nozick? That's a great question. And the answer is he has no idea. 
Because, I love that answer. Because he can't. This is, but this is a feature, not a bug. His point is, if you think about how radically different people are, the idea that there's just one way that we should all live, one kind of community that would be ideal for everybody is insane. So what he suggests instead is that people should be free to form whatever communities they're interested in forming, whatever communities they're interested in being a part of. For some, that's going to be rural. For others, it's going to be metropolitan. For some people, it's going to be religious. For other people, it's going to be secular. Um, there's no one way that all the people in the world would be able to live it, like in one particular sort of lifestyle. Uh, you know, Ben Franklin said, you know, early to bed and early to rise will make a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, yeah, I mean, some people are going to do better being early risers, but just as clearly, other people are going to prosper more being night owls. And the idea that there's one size fits all, we should all do the same thing, that's highly unlikely to be true. And so his argument is, uh, utopia at best could be a framework for utopias. The idea that any community that you enter, you have to be able to exit. Um, so if you want to join a society that has certain sorts of restrictions, because it seems appealing to you, that's great, go for it. But if it turns out that you're uncomfortable, that you're, you're, you're sort of uh, unhappy with that, then you should be able to exit that community as well. So the only thing that the overall society has to be is the idea that your right of choice and exit is preserved. So if you want to join a society where um, you're obliged to work uh, 90 hours a week for the common good and you can only take out from that common pool what the managers of that commune grant you, that's fine. If that's your idea of a great way to live, you're entitled to go live there. And it would be wrong for any of us to say you can't make a community like that. But people who have joined that community have to be free to leave if they decide this isn't really for me after all. Um, so that's where the framework part of it comes in. Um, because everybody's freedom has to be protected in terms of those choices about what kind of community I want to join. Once you're in that community, though, it could have whatever rules. So you can imagine a community, well, for example, Amish communities where they go without electricity. Um, that's totally legitimate because that's what they choose to do. It's their conception of a, you know, a pious life or whatever it is. And, so, and that's totally their prerogative to choose that sort of thing. But A, no one's forced to go without electricity. And B, any of them who wants to use electricity is free to leave the community. So that's a perfect example. Nozick imagines the whole world being like that. That would be utopia. If everybody could form the kinds of communities that they wanted to join, but retained the freedom to leave them uh, if they found them unsatisfactory. That's the way to completely respect the sort of vast pluralism and diversity of human nature. So I hope we pick up on this exact topic again in our second part of our conversation, because I really want to know, you know, how do we keep these individual utopian communities from meddling with each other? Because that seems like it might be a important part of the maintaining this utopian framework. To be sure. <laughs> so um, to be continued in our part two of our conversation about Robert Nozick, thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time. Thank you.